This first story is called Elise. Yo, heard this podcast and thought I'd share my story. This story is true and none is made up. When I was about 19, I had some weird experiences. One day I was taking a shower and when I got out, I was sitting down and drying off. We have a digital scale in our bathroom. I was drying off and I looked at the scale and I saw it move like someone stood on it. Then the digital scale went off and said 130 pounds. This freaked me out, so I started to dry off faster. Then my towel on the floor suddenly lifted in the middle like it was picked up by someone. I ran. I went through a lot of jokes and crap like this for a while, but nothing scary. One night I woke up and saw a girl around my age standing in the middle of my room, wearing a diner uniform that had a name tag, Elise. I lived alone at the time. I now I don't want to sound like a creep, but she was hot. And I mean hot. She was a dirty blonde, small button nose, green eyes, and just a gorgeous body and face, amazing breasts, more beautiful than any girl I had ever seen. She then disappeared. A while later, I was getting ready for bed, and she appeared again, this time completely nude. And I don't want to go into the details, but yeah, we had sex, I guess. This was the best sex I ever had in my life. Elise comes almost every week, and we still have great times. I used to be depressed, but this changed my everything. I'm now happier than I've ever been. I talk to others and they say she's a succubus, but she's never harmed me or done anything but give me great times. Maybe a horny spirit? I don't know. But do you guys know what's going on since you all seem to know a lot about this? (laughs) Thanks. That was submitted by John Capone. You don't read their last name because now he's going to get weird messages. (laughs) And especially since the story's about sex. But it's from the Facebook group. They would know. Yeah, they would know if they follow the Facebook group. Okay, but there, right. we have thousands of people oh, who listen okay, to this podcast okay. who don't right. follow the Facebook group, even though there are thousands of so, people in the Facebook group. So, as experts of this, we have actually had a podcast episode called, uh, episode called Sex with a Ghost. Yes, we have, where we talk about having sex with a ghost. So maybe if you were a good fan, John, <laughs> then you'd already you'd know. Listen to it. That this is possible. Yeah, it's and, very uh, possible. I don't think succubuses harm you. They just really suck your dick. Yeah, they fuck you, and then you just become theirs. Yeah. So now you know, try to date somebody else and see what happens. Probably yeah. Something bad. Yeah, the best sex ever? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nick. All what right. of that? I don't know, John. <laughs> Oh my god, I thought, okay, I'm already starting to freak out because I thought I saw something crawling on the wall, but it was oh, no. nothing. We just got done doing another po- podcast called the Homeschool Podcast for our friend Augustino, and uh, we already started talking about scary stuff since it's near Halloween. Happy Halloween, everybody. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's just get straight into this. If you don't know, this is True Scary Stories with Edie. This is two comedians reading scary stories. They're submitted by our listeners. So if you're not into that, you might want to stop listening right now. Yeah, because we tell the stories and then we comment on it. All them. right. So now we've got it. Let's get into it. Uh, and then don't forget to ch- join the Facebook group. It's at True Scary Stories with Edie on Facebook. So let's go. All right. Nick, what are you waiting for? Let's get into more stories. Okay. Thank you to Jimmy Diaz for finding this story for us called One Last Trick or Treat. It's that time of the year again. I know I'm going to be spending Halloween, same way I have for the past two years, slowly nursing a beer in the bar. 
watching the glass sweat on that smooth wooden counter, staring at it till it goes warm in my hand. I'm not there to get drunk. I'm there to escape. I never want to be alone at home over Halloween night again. I promised the deputy that I wouldn't talk about that night. The town didn't need it. Hell, I even deleted the video. But now with Halloween around the corner, it all comes back. I live in a small house at the end of the lane, another nondescript house down a row of its sisters. Prefabricated mostly, far enough off the beaten path to be cheap, not so far as to be rural, but close, pretty damn close. I didn't expect many kids to call around trick-or-treating come Halloween. It's a long road and most children manage to fill their baskets long before they get to my place. Besides, I quite like the peace and quiet. Halloween used to be a good night to settle down and catch some of the classic horror movies on TV. I kept a couple of bags of candy around just in case some kids actually made it all the way down the lane, but mostly it would be an evening all to myself. I can't quite remember what I was watching that night, probably because I had been enjoying an after-dinner beer, and I may have gotten carried away, dozing off after one too many. I woke with a startle. My beer had gone warm on the side table, my hand still curled around the can. I winced as I unwrapped my fingers. Something had woken me up. The TV droned on in the background, the senseless dribble of late night programming flickering across the room. Maybe it was just some high school kids out after some Halloween party, out on the streets making some noise that woke me up. I checked the time. Past midnight. I was glad that I invested in a little security for my house. Just the basics, really. A good camera to cover my front lawn. Motion-activated lights around the front and back. I was trying to make the tough decision of whether to clear up the mess right there and then, or just kick the can down the road till the next morning with a loud rapping at the door shattered the silence. The can bounced off the floor, warm beer spraying across the bottom of my track pants. The shock left me too numb to even swear. I had just set the can back upright when the knocking sounded again. The rhythmic rap Increasingly impatient, the temple building up as I stepped towards the door. I peered around the edge of the window. I saw nothing but my pale face in the glass. It was pitch dark outside. Why wasn't the light working? The knocking stopped. A tree branch, perhaps? Or something else tapping on the porch? The peephole glared at me, that little glass orb suddenly bulging with some half-promised horror. I swallowed, or I tried. My throat was dry, the warm beer on the floor suddenly inviting. It's nothing, I said out loud, hoping that the familiar echo of my voice off the walls would ground me somehow. I walked up to the door and peered out, only to see the orange cones cast by the halogen streetlights a distance away. Nothing. I thought to myself, feeling childishly stupid. I sucked in a deep breath, feeling my lungs strain, then let the air stream out slowly. Then another knock. I turned back around to face the door. My heart punched at the inside of my chest, its crazed dance playing counterpoint to the knocking. I wasn't surprised to see my handshake as I reached for the doorknob. Our town was a safe one, far from troubles of the big cities or so we read in the papers. We had little more to fear in the night than seeing our trash strewn across the yard by the nimble fingers of raccoons. I threw the door open. The porch lights winked on, suddenly blinding me. I blinked away the white spots from my vision. A pair of children stood on my porch. They must have been nine or ten. 
I couldn't see much more of them because they were in the classic Halloween getup. A simple sheet draped over each of them, a pair of holes cut out for them to see through. A pair of small baskets for candy broke through the small lines of the sheets. The toes of brand new dress shoes peeked out from under the sheets. A boy and a girl, I thought. Trick or treat. Such a common refrain. I expected the words, but not the delivery. They were but two fingers in front of me, yet their voices seemed to come from a great distance away. Two figures, sorry. Trick or treat. The pair spoke again. I felt a little discomforted at the distortion in their voices. More than the weird volume, their voices seemed to blend into each other's, with some strange harmonics at play at the edges. It seemed almost as though there were a choir of two, just there, speaking to me. Treat, I guess, I said. More than anything, I wanted those two away from my house. The whole situation felt wrong. The familiar veneer of the season concealing something deeper, something rotten, like that small panic when biting into a fruit and feeling the lack of resistance, your teeth sinking into the soft mush instead of sweet flesh. For a moment, I blazed the, blamed the haze of alcohol, their dregs asleep clouding my judgment, but adrenaline had swept those far away. My fear was true. I turned to the counter where I kept my keys and grabbed for the bag of candy I prepared for the occasion. I was half hoping that the two figures would be gone when I returned to the door, that they'd been a figment of my imagination, perhaps a shadow of some dream brought on by cheap horror movies and cold pizza. I had no such luck. The pair hadn't even moved an inch. They each raised their baskets. There was already an assortment of candy there. They'd had a good day. A bit late for you guys to be out, isn't it? Where are your parents? The only answer I got was an impatient shaking of the baskets, the rasp of candy wrappers rustling. I held out a handful of candy, ready to drop it and call it a night. I expected to see a small, pale hand clutching at the handle of the basket. Instead, I saw the anemic matte sheen of plastic. The basket was draped off the plastic hand of some kind of storm mannequin. I was more than thoroughly creeped out by this effective little trick. I shrugged. Maybe the voices were recorded, a little technology to bolster an otherwise traditional costume. I felt the fear melting away as I explained it to myself in my head. Just some clever little children, probably with the help of an adult. Smart, I thought. It had certainly got me going for a while. Stay safe, I told them, dropping the last of the candy into the baskets. They didn't acknowledge me. They just stood still on the worn wooden boards of my porch. I shut the door on them. The window darkened as the light on the porch shut off. Odd. Maybe the motion detection stopped working. Some unbidden instinct told me to stay there and wait. I heard the unmistakable sound of footsteps on the porch as the two walked off. Still, the light stayed dark. My relief grew as the odd strangers left my property. Still, something didn't sit right with me. Something wasn't right. The light wasn't working. It turned on when it detected me. It saw me. It didn't see the kids. The sensor was working. It was state-of-the-art. Passive infrared. Detected motion by detecting changes in temperature like a human body. Like mine. But not the kids. Whatever was under those pristine white sheets wasn't warm at all. The realization washed over me like an ice cube running down my spine. My breath came in short rasps. I had to see. I had to know. I could barely bring my hand to the curtains. They were shaking so bad. 
When I pinched the edge of the curtain between my thumb and my finger, the curtain began to undulate wildly. I filled my lungs and peered out through the glass. They were still there, barely 20 yards away, doing nothing, just standing there, motionless, facing the street. As I watched, they both swiveled their heads in perfect tandem to affix two pairs of fathomless eye holes on the window. There was no way. There was no way they could have seen me come to the window. I had to put it in the back of my mouth and bite down hard to keep from calling out. They knew. They knew I was there. I backed away from the window, dragging my leaden feet over the carpeted floor. I barely noticed when my heel knocked the can back. The beer leaked out onto the carpet, leaving a widening patch in front of me. I couldn't believe the raw animal fear those two had summoned up in me. Every instinct I had in me told me to run. Run. Get help. Anything but stay trapped in my own house. What could I do? Call the police and tell them I was scared of two little children trick-or-treating? Call one of my friends past midnight and ask them to come over like a little boy crawling to his parents' room after a nightmare? The situation was ridiculous. My mind told me so, that there had to be a rational explanation for everything, but I could not explain away the light, fluttery feeling in my stomach. I could not rationalize the prickly lump at the back of my throat. They'd only said three words to me in those unearthly tones. Who knew how cold those lips were? I shut the door to the kitchen, the sound echoing throughout the empty house. I turned my chair to face the front door, and then I waited, white-knuckled, for the dawn to come. I must have fallen asleep sometime during that long, cold wait, not daring to move from my chair, paralyzed with fear that one of those shrouded children would appear at my window, or worse yet, behind me. But even that manic store of energy wore out as the night wound to a close. I was woken up by a polite knock on the front door. I sat bolt upright, nearly falling off my chair. I stumbled to the door, a hint of dread from a few hours ago still lingering like a stale funk in the air. I checked the peephole again. This time, I was confronted with the well-scrubbed face of one of our town deputies. We'd been to school together. It was that kind of smallish town where you'd know almost everybody your age if they had history there. He was an earnest man, tough but fair. Good morning, officer. Good morning, he replied. The sour look on his face told me that it was anything but. His nose twitched as he took in the stale, sour smell of beer steaming off of the floor in the morning sun. Had a good night last night? I thought back to the night before. No, I didn't. The lawman was quick to see the fleeting shadow of doubt wash across my face. He pressed home his advantage. You care to explain why you stole two mannequins from the store, dressed them up, and put them on your lawn? He shifted to the side, and past his door-filling bulk, I saw two familiar shapes on my lawn. My lungs wouldn't fill with air. They were still there. They'd been there the whole time. You okay, buddy? The big man leaned in, blocking my view and steadying my shoulder with one of his strong hands. I brushed his hand off and lurched out into the yard, mindless of the freezing dew on my bare feet. The pair stood there. The draped sheets joined in between them. They were holding hands. The two of them were holding hands. I brought my palm down gingerly on the head of one nearer to me. Hard. I felt hard plastic. I whipped the sheet off of one in one smooth motion. I gave a strangled cry as I stared into the empty green eyes of a child mannequin. I backed away. Too quick. I ended up on my ass on the cold grass, crawling and scrambling backwards until I bumped into the solid legs of the deputy behind me. He'd been quick to recognize my unease earlier. 
He was just as quick to realize genuine fear. He hoisted me back to my feet and helped me back to the house. Mind telling me what that was all about? He dumped me on the office chair in front of my computer. I tried, but I couldn't force the words out. The deputy sighed and settled onto my couch, wrinkling his nose at the empty beer cans on the side table. He leaned forward. First call the morning after Halloween, and I'm chasing down some bullshit breaking to a store in the middle of the town. Now I've got you hungover and scared shitless from a damn pair of dolls on your front yard. What I know is, someone got into a store, smashed up the glass, stole sheets, and a couple of mannequins. Bloody kids again. Except the glass. The lines on his brow deepened. I watched his Adam's apple bob up and down. The glass was on the outside of the shop only. Damnedest thing. You got a camera on your yard, don't you? I nodded numbly. What say you give me another ten minutes of your time, Tops? We go through that footage. I see who put those things on your lawn and I'll be out of your life, hopefully for good. I turned to face my computer and called up the stored videos on my hard drive. They were all transferred by Wi-Fi, convenient for the time that I brought the cameras. Just put it on double speed backwards. We'll see who set them there soon enough. I hit the reverse play key and up the speed. I saw the two of us scuttle from the house to the lawn and back again. Then the first rays of the sun retreating from the grass, pulling back over the pair of figures until they were back in darkness. The two of them stood there, motionless, for the longest time. When the two figures moved at all by themselves in a jerky, swaying motion, back from my lawn to my front door, the cursor danced a little jig in the corner of the screen as the shakes returned, stronger than before. The sharp hiss behind me told me I wasn't alone in my discomfort. I shuddered as I watched myself on screen, so close to the two abominations, giving them a handful of candy each. I slowed the recording back to normal speed. On screen, I saw myself turn back into the house to retrieve the candy. The two figures stood there, impassive. As one, they both fixed those dark eye holes on the sheets on the camera. There was something else unmistakable. There was a slight pulse in the sheets, a small undulation. The mannequins were breathing. I've seen enough. I turned to look at the deputy, his face as white as the sheets on the shrouded figures on the screen, his hand tied around the grip of his sidearm. That of all the things scared me the most of all, a symbol of law and order who had seen the worst of what our little community had to offer, just as scared as I was and ready to pull a gun in my house. I clicked the window shut and got up. I wandered over to my cabinet. I pulled out a pair of tumblers and a bottle of the good stuff. The bottle gave me a couple of contented glugs as I sloshed the rich golden whiskey into the glasses. I set one down in front of the other man and took a sip from my glass. A lawman could lose his job drinking on duty. This deputy didn't hesitate when he emptied half his glass. He didn't look at me when he spoke. My old nan wasn't from around here. She was back from the old country across the sea. She hated Halloween. Said there were things out there at night that weren't meant to see the light of day. One night a year, she told me, for one single night, some things were set loose. The candy and the costumes were a new thing. Back in the past, on All Hallows' Eve, good folk crossed themselves and prayed and stayed in. Whatever's on that recording, it's not what our town needs, you understand? Dumb high school kids, I said, the lie taking shape and form in my mouth, fooling around, the lie fleshed out, took on a veneer of credibility. That would be the explanation. No one had to know the dark kernel of that story. And your camera? It was having technical difficulties that night. 
Never was a good piece of equipment. Regretted buying it the same week. He stuck out his hand and we shook on it. And I've kept my word to now. There isn't a good reason why I broke my promise. I never known true fear till that night, but I replayed in my head over and over. The recording is long gone, of course, but every detail of that night has been branded on my mind. I remember the fear, but I cannot think of a single action the two of them had done to threaten me. Eerie, unnatural, but without a drop of malice. It'll be Halloween soon. I know where I'll be on that dark night. Some things roam the streets that shouldn't be there. The masks and costumes aren't always for the children. Sometimes they're there for the adults, for our own protection. After the deputy left, I watched the video forwards just once. I remember seeing the two figures on my lawn, slowly inching their hands up, locking them under the sheets and waiting for the sun to rise. Things that shouldn't be out on this good earth. But sometimes, just sometimes, they just want the simple things. Like one last trick-or-treat. Oh, and candy. And candy. And candy, and they scare you. Yeah. No, well, there really is no rhyme or reason for them doing that. Yeah. And you deleted the footage, so we can't believe you. Yeah, man. You had it, and you lost it. You had everything, and you lost it. What do you think, True? True scary stories? Do I think it's a true? Are we yeah. going to start asking, are these stories true or not? Well, we ask different questions every time, Nick. It's not the same questions per podcast. Well, I don't know. And we have asked if they were true before. Like, do you think it's real or not? What do you think? I think no. Because you had the tapes and you deleted them. Doesn't seem... That's the only reason you think it's not true? Yeah, I've heard a lot of messed up stuff. <laughs> okay, all right. I'm really, I'm really willing to believe anything could happen. But there was also no malice intended. There's no malice intended. Yeah. Just two little mannequins that wanted to go trick-or-treating. Wait, but the real hands. question is, the candy's still there. Did they eat the candy? Oh. Because then this, there could be a whole point to this. They didn't say anything about the candy. Nope, that's the missing missing portal to the story. Oh, no. Okay, Yay. that's our favorite holiday after Christmas and my birthday. That's me and Nick's both favorite holiday is my birthday. Okay, so now what we got for you, we got a multi-part story, which Nick is super famous for. He found this story. When I found the body found story. Uh, when we just complete each other's sentences. This one is called The God Experiment. Okay, well, the, really the only thing I do is oh, introduce the stories sorry. now. I don't have my name tied. I'm tied to the podcast. Okay, go. Okay, so you let me do that. Okay, okay good. All right. <laughs> All right. The first part of this multi-part series is called Subject One. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to play God? Some questions should stay unanswered. We selected seven individuals for the study. My colleague found it important to have a radical mixture of gender and sexual orientation. Discreet cameras were set up throughout the participants' home and places of business. We instructed the subjects to proceed with their daily activities, normally as if nothing had changed. We then told our people a white lie. We told them that a team of scientists would be working to alter their lives. Allegedly, 
This group analyzed recordings and applied subtle changes to the subject's real-time routines. Each modification would be designed to improve personal productivity and overall contentment. We told subjects that they should not notice any differences whatsoever. It could be as simple as a passerby saying hi. We also forbid all contact with us during this time. The reality was that we did nothing. We just watched. In the interest of avoiding the ire of recent legal proceedings, I will avoid using last names. I worked with a respected sociologist named Thomas, or Tommy for short. Tommy's prestige in the industry secured our funding in the first place. I considered myself the intern. My job entailed ordering pizza, bringing coffee, and answering phones. Sometimes, Tommy allowed me to watch the cameras while he slept or left the building. Not a bad gig for a 23-year-old kid with a sociology degree. That changed soon after it started. My hatred for the job started with our first subject, Michael. He began to behave erratically. The biography listed him as subject one, a straight white male, age 28. He stood at 6 feet 3 inches. He weighed 190 pounds. He had dark brown hair with a blemish on the upper right corner of his eyebrow. Mike did not have a girlfriend at the time. Thankfully, Tommy considered that factor. It did not take long for things to go haywire. On the second day of record keeping, I caught Mike talking to himself in the middle of the night. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Are you sure? I don't want to do it. The noise nearly caused me to fall off my chair. The rest of the day had been silent. I checked the cameras twice, but found no one else there. Tommy had left the building on another one of his errands. I texted him an alert just as Michael jumped out of bed on the infrared and walked to his door. Camera 3. One is losing his marbles. Tommy walked into our makeshift laboratory a couple of minutes later. He wore a look of guarded excitement and an undersized white coat that barely covered his overstuffed belly. Crumbs on his jacket suggested that snacking had caused him to slack off next door. Yet again, Tommy looked fascinated when he saw the screen. He watched the monitor over the shoulder like a parrot. Michael banged his head against the wall. My colleague sounded downright giddy when he exclaimed, It's happening. Record this, kid. I didn't know what it meant, but I followed orders. After about 20 headbangs, Michael stopped moving. We waited and watched for 10 minutes. We checked his vitals. Somehow, Michael was not injured. He only fell asleep standing up in an eerie feeling to watch a man on the verge of losing his mind the curtains in his apartment fluttered nervously in the wind every few hours michael roused himself from sleep and checked the window nervously then returned to his perch by the bedroom door he repeated this trend a few times throughout the night he didn't get back in bed all evening the next day michael got a promotion we had nothing to do with it we watched the whole thing from a hidden cubicle camera Michael's boss sounded truly grateful. She considered Michael's job performance to be worthy of recognition. To boot, the firm had been particularly successful that quarter. That meant a big bonus. The shit-eating grin on Michael's face told us that he considered the experiment to be responsible. Our subject got very drunk that night. We did not capture the bar in our video feed. I did, however, catch his walk of shame home sometime around 2 in the morning. I adjusted the audio and found the guy talking to himself once again. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Are you sure? I don't want to do it. Michael walked into the apartment and flicked a light switch. The room remained quiet and empty. 
He repeated his favorite little phrase over and over again. He futzed around the living room in an apparent panic. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Are you sure? I don't want to do it. It annoyed me. To be honest, I started to doubt my colleague. Unstable subjects tend to skew results. I had not considered the more dire consequences at the time. Who is he talking to, I asked. Tommy didn't answer. Michael walked towards into the kitchen and grabbed a glass of water from his fridge. His movement seemed extremely erratic. The overall behavior reminded me of an animal with rabies, especially the way one leg dragged behind the other. Suddenly, as if hearing something, Michael stopped and stared out the kitchen window. Water spilled all over the floor. Michael stayed in that position for five minutes. Then he offered one last line in the direction of the kitchen door. Are you sure? Then he sprinted outside without another word. Switch to camera four, Tommy asked Bart. Barked over my shoulder. I did as of what I was told. I swear, that's it. The memory of this still keeps me up at night. Michael's drunken shape came back into focus on the green grass of the apartment complex. The receiver taped to his chest captured rapid breath as his haphazard footsteps traced a path that led in only one direction. Headlights and horns blasted only 50 feet away. The freeway. Tommy, this is a problem. This is a big fucking problem. I must have repeated that phrase a thousand times, but my pleas were ignored by my wide-eyed companion. I grabbed the office phone and quickly tried to find an emergency contact. All the while, Michael teetered in between traffic carelessly like a missing toddler. There's nothing we could do, Tommy muttered. What do you want me to say? Michael's body exploded the moment it met the tractor trailer. He died that day. Our benefactor compensated the family handsomely. Litigation was temporarily avoided. The God experiment continued with the remaining subjects uninterrupted for five weeks. Oh man, okay, I'm excited. Let's get to the second part art. Subject two. The God experiment's second trial claimed a 29 year old woman. Her name was Caroline. According to the bio, the subject stood at five feet three inches. She weighed 135 pounds. Caroline had dirty blonde hair that met mildly hazel eyes, with astigmatism affecting both lenses. Survey results indicated a surprising lack of romantic partners in the picture. Regardless, she was a female who pursued men exclusively. That fact checked Tommy's second box. So entered subject two. Caroline lived alone in a small apartment close to home. She preferred it that way. The short distance made it easy to check on her mother, Jacqueline, twice a day. Jacqueline suffered from stage 2 breast cancer, and the debilitating results of the chemotherapy just started to take effect around the time of our study. But she never complained. Some had it worse. Her dad died from the same disease years back, and nobody wanted that. Her brother was working now, and Caroline considered that a good thing. But no one knew how long Sean could stay employed. Minimum wage positions tended to be seasonal. She told friends on the phone that the new job seemed lucrative, but scary. What if something could happen to him? What if he died? If she lost either one, she might just lose her mind. And so late at night, Caroline prayed. I like to listen on the audio while Tommy snored in the hallway. She asked God for the same things we all do. A game-changing cure for her mom, maybe, who started to look thinner every day. Perhaps her brother could land a manager position at the new store in town. He has so much potential, she would say, 
Her voice rose slightly past a whisper every time she repeated that line. Give him strength to apply himself this time. Caroline also asked God when it would be time to meet a man worth the wait. That last one seemed a lot less important than the rest, though, and stayed noted as such in all prayers. She repeated the routine every single night. Nobody ever answered. That changed on the second week of our study. Jacqueline had an important doctor's appointment in the morning. Her daughter stayed up late into the night with worry. She said 17 prayers, six Hail Marys, six Our Fathers, and five personalized messages to the big man himself. Somehow, the kid got something right. Excitement overwhelmed the car's audio the moment the two of them got back inside. Jacqueline spoke with an apprehensive tone at first. Wait, I can't hear that doctor. He mumbles when he talks. The chemo actually worked? The backdrop of the corporate parking lot suddenly painted a beautiful scene. Mother and daughter embraced for several long moments. Static from their windbreakers corrupted the microphones for a moment. They both wiped tears from their eyes as they sat back in their seats. The chemo actually worked. Caroline coughed a couple of times to clear her voice. Doctor said you need some follow-up scans, some new medicine, but no more treatment. She paused and looked at her mother with admiration. You are in remission, young lady. I paused the video. The moment caused me to tear up as well. The poor battle-worn woman smiled brightly underneath her wig. She looked young again. I guess the recognition of salvation took off 10 years. It was beautiful to see that something good happened, finally, in a string of so much bad. Tommy appeared over my shoulder. Screenshot that. I did as told. We resumed the video a second later. Call your brother, he worries. Caroline's mother usually wore a gruff and unfriendly expression, but today nothing could contain the excited sparkle in those weary eyes. And let's get a drink. Oh, he's on speakerphone. He called us, Caroline giggled. Sean, can you hear us? A confident young male voice crackled through the secondary audio. Guess who just became a full-timer? Both of Caroline's wishes came true that same day. And so, the family celebrated well into the night. They chose a restaurant on the outskirts of town, we did not have the, this location on our camera feed. I hope they had a good time. Once again, our cameras caught a drunk subject stumbling home after hours. I was alone at the time. When I enhanced the audio, her nervous voice caused my blood to run cold. Are they okay? Okay. Are they okay? Okay. Are they okay? Okay. Caroline mumbled the words on a loop like a depressing song. Are they okay? Okay. Are they okay? Okay. Are they okay? Okay. Tommy promised his wife a real dinner for the first night and who knows how long. I promised to cover. I called and texted him about a thousand times. Subject two, same symptoms. We cannot let this fucking happen again. Answer the fucking phone, Tommy. I did not receive a response. Caroline teetered around her family run in confused stutter step. She repeated her new phrase to the empty room a few more times. The whole thing seemed bizarre. Too bizarre for just a crazy night of drinking. I did not think drugs could have been involved, at least not voluntarily. The girl didn't even keep alcohol in the house. After five minutes, Caroline walked to the door and stepped into the rain. The temperature read 43 degrees Fahrenheit. She did not have shoes, a sweater, or a hat on. I sw swapped through views as quickly as possible in order to catch up. After a few moments, camera two found our subject in her backyard. A dusty cornfield sat on the corner of the rural property, and Caroline walked towards it slowly. She did not look worried or in a rush. 
The mite caught cool, calm, and collected breaths through the rain. In fact, for the first time in the entire experiment, she seemed at peace. At peace. Blood pressure and vitals lowered to healthier levels. Her pulse did not indicate any issues. Caroline reached the edge of the cornfield before long. She turned and took one last look towards the house and smiled. Part of me still feels like she smiled at the camera. Without warning, a blunt object struck her head from behind. I sat dumbfounded and helpless as a blurry shape dragged our subject away. The audio caught one last line before the mic fell into the maze. Are they okay? Okay. Subject two is still missing to this day. No! Well, that was out of her control. Yeah. It's weird that it just happened that she went out there at the same time. Has somebody captured you? Think it was Tommy? I don't know. He wasn't there. Oh. He wasn't in the laboratory. Scary story. Science tells me that it's probably Tommy. But I guess we're just going to have to keep listening and find out. Subject three. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to watch seven lies fall apart on camera? Nope. Picture yourself on a train ride over a mountain covered in ice. You can hear the avalanche. A monotonous rumble of shifting rocks and billowing snow overloads the cold air. That noise can only mean one thing, right? You are sure death is coming. But no one in the carriage screams. No one is crying. Instead, it's calm and quiet right up until the end. Subject three was a transgender male named Courtney. According to our biography, the participant stood five feet, six inches. He weighed 150 pounds. In the photograph, dark, unblemished skin met stylish black hair shaved short on one side. Courtney was in a relationship with a female, but the happy couple had not moved in together. I considered camera placement to be ideal inside the cramped studio apartment. From an early age, Courtney exhibited clear signs that birth did not match the right body. Early onset identity crisis led to complexities, including depression and anxiety, that went untreated throughout the teenage years. That madness ended when medical professionals took corrective measures to implement a lifelong dream. He worked a high-paying job in the healthcare industry and held a padded HSA to boot. He paid for the whole procedure on himself. Even still, Courtney's parents ceased all communication. That fact haunted him. Courtney never considered himself religious. Survey results indicated that identification with a few major concepts. He believed in a God. He believed in judgment and punishment and some sort of peace in the end for all of us. Like everybody, Courtney had his own issues with the big man or big lady. On the topic of omnipotence, He wrote, If there is a puppet master, I am his missing string. I found that sort of dark, but he still prayed for some things. The messages delivered by his bedside in the dark of the night were to no one in particular. Each offering began with something like, I don't know if anybody is listening, but... Because it felt safer that way. Easier not to damn yourself with one if you got a chance with another. He prayed for his family to talk to him again. He prayed for acceptance. He prayed for his little sister's health and another promotion and better medication. 
and less makeup. But most of all, he asked for something most may be able to understand. He prayed for enough money to make his girlfriend a wife and start a life. In the second week of our study, things seemed to be heading in the right direction. A late night conversation in the bedroom with Samantha broached the topic of marriage. His little sister Sarah texted often and claimed she felt fine. The course of his career continued to trend upwards, and bonus season claimed another happy participant. However, we began to notice similar symptoms that Tuesday after subject two went missing. Courtney's mother called that morning. The conversation started pleasant enough. She talked about herself mostly. The gossip at the library, favorite television shows, the usual. However, the topic eventually led to where it always did, her father's drinking problem. Dad must have heard the last part when he walked by. He offered one soul-crushing bit of advice into the receiver while Mom tried to escape the room. Tell my little girl I say hello. Tommy and I were both in the office at that time. The results of that single sentence were almost too horrible to bear. Courtney was in his car and approaching a bridge. The phone line disconnected, but he still screamed into it anyway. Mom? Dad? That's it. You have nothing fucking else to say to me. Why did you even fucking call me? Why did you do this to me? The line beeped without sympathy. Something inside the poor man's eyes looked dead inside. It did not require a 720p video inside the dash cam to properly characterize the look of defeat and utter anguish. I wanted to help him, but as always, there was no time. Plus, the rules of the God experiment forbade interaction. Tommy looked ready to make an exception when Courtney pulled over and got out of the car. We switched cameras. Our participant stood on the narrow sidewalk and stared into the distance for a couple of minutes. Then he walked forward. Fog had started to pour in at that altitude. Rain had floated in and out of the area all evening. Quietly, Courtney began to whisper one line on loop, just like all the others. I am your missing string. I am... I'm just your missing string. <laughs> I am your missing string. I'm your missing string. Tommy appeared really worried at that moment. He grabbed his cell phone and furiously thumbed a text to a number I did not recognize. Then he reached over and paused my video and instead pointed to an opposite monitor. Camera 4 showed the inside of the car. What the fuck is that? He asked. It was impossible to see any features, but one fact seemed clear. A black shape sat very still in the back seat at about medium height. After a few moments, the door opened beside it and something exited in the opposite direction. We frantically adjusted the cameras to get a view, but there was no one else in sight. I resumed the video and checked on Courtney. He dangled carelessly off a steel support beam as I repeated my favorite slew of curses. The cold, hard ground seemed several hundred feet below did not seem to be worrying to anybody but Tommy and me. Where do all the machine strings go? Courtney asked our audio feed. Then, he slipped off his shirt. He unattached the microphone. He finished one final sachet around the pole. Then subject three took a dramatic swan dive into the below. I still wonder about his question. I don't think anybody really knows. Oh no, so someone is making them go crazy. It's not Tommy because now he's in the picture. Tommy's in the picture. Okay, let's keep going.
Subject 4. Michelle was a transgender female who never quite adjusted to the cameras in her home. That fact alone made her much smarter than the rest. It is an unmistakable and itching feeling to be watched. Some people recognize it better than others. The sensation can creep through your guts like a virus. It makes all those little hairs on your neck stand on end. Survival instincts implore human beings to seek shelter in these situations. It is always best to avoid the eyes of the hunter. But what if there is no way to be sure of safety? What if the lion has eyes in every corner of the jungle? Subject 4 survey indicated a hermit-like behavior. She did not have many family or friends. Her employer was an online blog that allowed employees to work from home. The topics of conversation for this site were nothing short of the usual dog shit you see in National Enquirer and simple publications. Popular headlines included, Woman Marries Alien, Bigfoot Kept Lumberjack as Love Slave, and more of the uh, usual attention-seeking crap. The more absurd, the better. Michelle had been with the company nearly 10 years. Her articles on conspiracy theories built a reputation that stretched across the country. Nevertheless, a layoff at corporate headquarters claimed her job in the second week of our study. As with past participants, our video caught all the gory details. Our subject cried in bed for days. She did not leave her apartment for a week. Doctor's appointments stayed canceled, groceries were delivered to the house, and the few friends remaining offered nothing outside of a few half-hearted text messages. So it goes. Michelle pursued the employment market relentlessly. Personally, I thought this indicated a willingness to take life more seriously. The resume compiled online looked impressive to my untrained eyes. She called and begged several other companies that claimed to be hiring. She filled out a million applications online, but I suppose the job market is tough for the type of person who once wrote that her landlord is a lizard. Most newspapers insisted on a more serious experience. A few fellow blog sites openly laughed during interviews on the phone. The windfalls of hope and repeated disappointment became tough to watch. All these factors added up left Michelle at home all day alone. She turned to alcohol somewhere around the third week. Tommy blamed the strange behavior that followed on her excessive drinking. I remain unconvinced. The warning signs that I had come to identify seemed to be repeating themselves in subject four. One hungover morning, Michelle moved a chair into a blind spot in the kitchen. She sat, sat there for four hours. The entire apartment stayed quiet during this time. When Michelle emerged, she seemed suspicious of everything from the cat to her own shadow. She searched the apartment endlessly for something, and that made us worry. During setup, Tom etched out one of our cameras into a wood on her nightstand. Sure enough, she found it after tearing the whole room apart. She talked to us openly from that point on. That revelation certainly affected our test results. But as always, our responsibility stayed the same. Interference and correction did not present itself as an option. We were only observers. The camera became a prop in Michelle's bout of self-destruction. She carried that and a bottle of Jack Daniels everywhere. She talked to both as if live streaming. Most of the messages were incoherent and similar to the nonsense she used to pedal for a living. Reporting live from Kitchen, water has turned a mysterious brown color. Back to you, Doc. Reporting from the bedroom, something is scratching underneath my floor. Can you guys hear that? Reporting from the den, someone is outside my door. Is that one of you? 
Nothing I saw or heard on screen confirmed her theories. However, my concerns started to get more serious when Michelle refused to sleep. Two days without rest turned to three and four and five. Her behavior became manic. On several occasions, I caught her staring at the walls for hours at a time. Soon enough, Michelle found the remaining cameras. She took the hiding in blind spots that made it impossible for me to see her after that. The frequency and length of all the live streams radically decreased. I hoped that wherever she went, Michelle finally found some sleep. The apartment was always very quiet during that time. There were no other voices inside. One morning, many days later, someone knocked at the apartment door. Michelle had not been outside in two weeks. Tommy snored so loud in the lab that I almost missed it. The knock started out quiet and unassuming. After a few unanswered raps, it grew more aggressive until it soon became an absolute pounding that stirred my colleague from his sleep and caused Michelle to sprint into my line of sight in a panic. Do you guys hear it now? We did. What do I do? I had no idea. Tommy pulled out his phone again. He had a block on the device that obscured my vision from one side. I asked him angrily about the text messages. He started to answer me just as subject four walked over the door. Shit, she cannot answer that door, he muttered instead. Michelle could not hear us. She looked through the peephole neurotically. Then she shrugged her shoulders, caught a quick nervous breath, and unlocked the chain. Why don't we have vision in the hallway, I asked, fearing the answer. It came a second later. Gunfire erupted into our headphones. A bullet caught subject four in the head. I knew immediately that our Michelle was dead. She did not even have time to scream. Tommy pulled the plug from every computer, monitor, and power grid in the lab. Video and audio disappeared in kind. He fired off a few more fire, rapid-fire messages. In a few short moments, the God experiment fell completely offline. His next words removed any doubt in my mind. We have to help the remaining subjects. We are running out of time. Oh, good, Tommy. Yeah. Now you say now it after the third up. one died. Jesus. We have to. Oh, yeah, we've been saying that this whole time. I told him, man. All right, here we go. How's Tommy going to fix this one? Tommy sure is in a pickle. Yeah, he is. Tommy Pickle. From Rugrats? No, I didn't think you would know that. Yeah. Because you're so much more wise <laughs> than I am. Okay, here we go. Next segment. Subject 5. God found me in the middle of a hurricane. We were absolutely flying down an ill-advised stretch of I-95. Storm warnings vibrated the phones in our pockets like a pair of dildos. That evening, the roads stay slick with white waves of spitting rain and bits of black ice that stuck to the asphalt like butter. I clung to the steering wheel and kept my eyes on the road but still begged my friend to fill me the fuck in. Who are you texting? What is going on? Where are we going? Say something. Tommy tore his eyes from the phone and finally turned to face me. How do you think we have any money? I stared blankly. I had never really considered the fact. Studies always had donors. It could be anybody. Individuals, institutions, companies, or organizations. As long as they followed the letter of the law. Which we did not. My colleague flicked my forehead like an asshole. I swatted his hand away and tried to focus on the road. Who do you think paid for all the computers in the back seat? Or the lab we sit in every day? 
How about the extremely expensive video equipment we used to monitor five individuals the weeks they were murdered? Five? Priyanka is... Tommy guffawed at my apparent stupidity. Take the next exit. I did as told. The dripping water through the window made me shiver involuntarily. I did it myself this time, he mumbled. Better that way, for a dissident. Nothing but a little arsenic in her girlfriend's pepper chicken. What the fuck are you talking about, I asked. You have to talk to me, man. I'm the one driving. Tommy took one long look at me before he finally sighed and replied. There's a man behind the curtain, Justin. There always is. We need to get away from him. A massive oak tree fell from the side of the road. It landed about 20 feet ahead. That should have given me enough time to stop, but the brakes in my car screeched unevenly. I did my best to swerve, and so we did not crash immediately. Tommy had time to offer one final line in the chaos before wooden splinters ripped apart the paneling of my mid-sized SUV. There is always a man behind the curtain. The next few moments in my memory is a mixture of broken glass and hurling objects. I can remember the tumbles pretty clearly. One, two, three, four, five suspensions of gravity in total. Seat belts kept both of us stationed securely to the vehicle, but the same could not be said for the pile's electrical equipment. The good news was that the last turnover put the car right side up. The bad news was that we were in the middle of a New Jersey swamp and Tommy was losing a lot of blood. He faded in and out of consciousness. My arm felt broken. Nonetheless, adrenaline allowed me to pull my colleague from the car and lay him down on the hill. My middle-class pipe dream sunk into the two feet of mud with all of our equipment. We were stuck. The gaining rain made it impossible to drag ourselves up. I tried to stop Tommy's bleeding with my shirt. That was about as successful as trying to stop a spout with a pin. The worst wound the old man sustained struck his wrinkled old head. Red bits of skin and flesh poked through my white shirt. The pulsing scrape seemed up the rain all the same. I don't think he had much time left. I do think the integrity of that moment made him reconsider a few things in life. He would have tortured her. The words again made me feel cold inside. Why? Who is he? Why does he care? I don't understand. Tommy, why would you kill one of our subjects? It was just like going to sleep. A pair of headlights arrived by the side of the road soon after. I could barely see the figure that gracefully slid down the embankment. He wore an impeccable black suit that fits his thin and agile form flawlessly. I waved and called out, There's a man dying here! But he did not reply. The rain started to erode the embankment we were lying upon. The shadow in the suit watched me struggle to hold up Tommy's body with a broken arm and a couple of cracked ribs. He snorted audibly and said, Good evening to you both, in an awkwardly confident tone. I tried to reply back. Help had arrived. I thought we were saved. But before I could, the man Tommy once called God shot him two times in the stomach. Then there was only one subject remaining in the study. Me. Whoa wee. Whoa wee wowie. Oh, who is this guy? I don't know. Okay, we're about to find out. Here we go. What a perfect time for us to remind you to join the Facebook group at True Scary Stories with Edie. Go give us five stars on iTunes. If you're not going to give us five stars, don't bother saying something mean. All right. Let's get to the conclusion of this. Yes. Subject seven. I wished I wasn't alive. 
That's such a bullshit statement these days. What do kids call it? Basic? The very same line could be applied to waiting in the doctor's office with a common cold, or sneezing in someone's face, or using the restroom in a public place. It just doesn't mean anything anymore, you know? Exaggeration and veneer have taken the guts out of the very words meant to imply the severity of my situation. Truthfully now, let's try that again. I wished I was not alive. If you thought the devil capable of immense torture, then God will almost certainly offer you a pleasant surprise. He brought me somewhere inside. The drugs that coursed through my veins in an IV were unlike anything I had ever experimented with in college. Pain became something to rest my head on when breathing was no longer a required chore. The shapes inside my teeming space blended together like three white rabbits shuffling through a surgery room. I felt insanity grip the corners of my brain and hold it tight like a vice. I prayed to death through gritted teeth and begged him to visit that night, but he didn't. Tommy knew about this fate. His last words told me everything I needed to know. There's always a man behind the curtain. I would like to talk about the God experiment. Through all the chaos of pain and pounding vibrations in my body, I could hear the voice as clear as it could be. It boomed and resonated throughout the hollow room as if on echo. I spoke back as a humble servant prepared to meet my maker. Subject 5 is a little lady named Piryanka. She is 25 years old, bisexual female. A white rod of lightning intercepted my mind. Again. Subject 5 was killed by Subject 6, Tommy. The pain grew worse. God did not like my answer. I asked him why. His response was to draw a deep breath and an overwhelming sigh. The kid's too loopy. This is not working. We'll have to try this again later. I looked around the room and tried to take in my surroundings. The walls were stained with waves of brown water damage and growing mold. The floor felt concrete. My bare feet were tied up to the legs of a rickety wooden chair. I shook it nervously. Fuck! God screamed in annoyance. This is not the plan. This is not the fucking plan. A female voice called out from somewhere in the background. Life never fits the plan, Diego. But you were the handler on this one. Your fuck up. A third deep tone murmured its support. Diego's reply seemed angry. I did not know why. His memory is supposed to wipe. The feds tested it years ago. Hell, we used the same drugs on Subject 6 for six years. Is it too soon? The female voice sounded downright cocky when she replied. Not too soon. Just doesn't always work out the way you want. Their voices converged in a cacophony of whispers too difficult to understand. Somewhere underneath all the horrible things churning inside of me, clarity approached. You're not God. I offered the words to the room in a daze. Oh, now he gets it. The male voice laughed again. Then he punched me in the mouth. Haven't you heard? The state is God. The G-man looked at the bruise on his fist while I spit a pool of blood in his direction. It all added up in that moment. The subjects were dissidents. They were destined to die because our government wanted them dead. Our purpose in the God experiment was only to ensure death came at the right time. We have to kill him. The attorney general, the lady cut off her partner. The AG doesn't have to know anything. They both pause. Do you hear that? I took momentum of the moment to throw my chair to the floor. The struggle that ensued did not favor my side. I broke the legs and managed to scurry free, but soon enough, the third giant crow wrapped his arms around my arms while the two other punched me. When Tommy burst through the unlocked door to our room, I outright laughed at his sheer stupidity. 
The fat man was covered in blood. It dripped from his head and lab coat like an absurd C-rated horror movie. However, his next few actions were nothing short of heroic. Without them, I would not be alive to tell this story today. Thank the Lord, Tommy brought a big old gun with him. Two bullets caught my attackers immediately. The third let go of me just before Tommy shot him in the knee. I stumbled out of the room and escaped the scene of the crime just in time. Tommy caught one more bullet himself that night. He died alongside the same men that ruined his life. The government selected seven subjects from a radically different backgrounds. Their names were Mike, Caroline, Courtney, Michelle, Priyanka, Tommy, and me. The reason behind multiple genders and orientation seems pretty simple. Our handlers wanted to prove a point during this run of the God experiment. Everyone is vulnerable at any time. Anyone can be taken care of outside of the public eye. The subjects we watched were targeted for execution by the same government that collects their taxes. And so, there is no more apt description for our commanders-in-chief. The state is God. If you ask more questions, I'm afraid they are in very short supply. For the past six months, I have been forced to hide, and I do not know why the feds allow me to be alive. I can feel their eyes every time I go to bed. Just before I submitted this final update, the camera on my laptop flicked to red. The state is watching me. They are watching you too. I only wanted someone else to see. Whoa! Oh, no, Edie. You've got us quivering like two brand new dildos. No, no, I know. It's all things like, that's the metaphor? It was you know, vibrating like two dildos. Oh, oh, we were oh, quivering. Okay, all right. I'm quivering like a brand new dildo. Um, yeah, and dildos don't vibrate. Vibrators vibrate. No, dildos can vibrate. When they technically they call vibrators, when they be technically called vibrators. No, they have. You know what? This isn't about what the podcast. <laughs> if you want to hear more about that, you have to check out our podcast. Two dildos. <laughs> Do dildos vibrate or not? <laughs> Which will our first episode will be next week after Halloween. Yes. Um. Yeah, that is. I mean, of course, it's got to end something. Like, what do you think? Is it true? Uh, seems kind of like it could be true. It seems like it could be true. Uh, if you want to weigh in on this, go to treescarystories.com. I'm not going to do <laughs> the that. The Facebook group. The Facebook group. Weigh in. And then if you want to submit your own scary story, definitely give it to us on the Facebook group. Um, I know that we got some... New reviews? Yeah, we did get some new reviews. We did get one from Australia that uh, she we can't see because we're from the U.S., but thank you for listening. iTunes... Okay, cool. Here we go. Um, so, yeah, if you go on iTunes and you give us a rating, it really does help us out. Um, TX Buggin says, perfect combo of scary and funny. I'm in love with this podcast. It is so silly. It makes the podcast so fun. Nick is so great and fits as the reader. This is such a great source of entertainment. I especially love the concept of comedians telling stories. The transition of funny and scary are also on the spot making it a perfect mix. You will definitely get chills from these stories while cracking up at some of the silly jokes. Can't wait for more of these to come. Uh, everything nickname what's taken ten ten <laughs> Jesus. Edie. Edie. Hey, I don't know why people are so upset with all these one-star reviews. So I just started listening and I'm hooked. I love Edie's dorky comments and Nick's voice is great for storytelling. I listen to them on my way to work through traffic. Thank you. Also, she calls her listeners uglies. Not as an insult. People just find any reason to be offended. Anyways, Nick and Edie, love you guys. Much love. Uh, yeah. 
That's right, Uglies. Yeah. <laughs> you know it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for listening to this special Halloween episode of True Scary Stories with Edie. And you know what, Uglies? We'll catch you on the Facebook group. <laughs>